Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters that are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Will Lynch, and I'm the Associate Editor of Resident Advisor. Few artists have seen club culture evolve the way Boris has. The German DJ got his start dancing to high energy in West Berlin more than a decade before house and techno transformed the city's nightlife. In the late 80s, he lived in New York and got his house and disco education at the Paradise Garage and David Mancuso's loft. He returned to Berlin in the early 90s, just as the city's techno scene was exploding. Today, all his experiences inform his sets at Berghain, where he's been a resident since day one, and Cocktail d'Amour, a gay party he runs with the duo Disco Dromo. Talking at our office in Berlin, Boris looked back on the early chapters of his extraordinary personal history. part of your personal history yeah. was that you lived in New York for a time yes. in the 80s. Yeah. Were you into dance music, DJ culture before that, or was that the beginning for you? No, I think uh, it actually happened, well, as much as I remember, I would say in the beginning of the 80s, you know, when I was living in Berlin and going out and uh, experiencing actually the nightclub scene in the old West Berlin at that time. There were some amazing clubs and and an amazing nightclub like Metropole and um, I used to go there like in the early 80s, like 80, 81 and 82 and that was my start into dance music. And that's before House and Techno. Yeah, yeah, it was all about disco, high energy, punk, new wave, all mixed up in different locations. What was the atmosphere like at those parties? You had like smaller places like the Jungle or Quidditch or DNC who played like a very eclectic mix of music in a smaller venue while you had like this big club on Nollendorfplatz that was Metropole and that was just playing, you know, really full-on disco and high energy at that time. And what brought you to New York? I was kind of fed up in the mid-80s with Berlin because it seemed like it didn't really develop into anything at that time. It was kind of like a black hole, I thought. And for me, it was like leaving Berlin and going to a different city. Like I thought, well, I could go to Amsterdam, I could go to London, I could go to Paris. But actually to go and make like a big jump, I said, well, I'm going to go to New York because... I want something that's definitely bigger than anything else. And at that time, in the mid-80s, it was all about New York, actually. Also musically, I mean, influenced everybody and everything. New York was perceived as cool in Berlin? Well, there there has always been kind of like a connection artistically and musically between New York and Berlin, like, you know, through the 70s and 80s. I mean, David Bowie lived in... Berlin, Iggy Pop, you know, and lots of other people came and visited. And actually, there was always this like kind of connection 
art-wise and music-wise between New York and Berlin. And that was, you know, it's like kind of a beacon, you could say, you know, that always was there. Are you from Berlin originally? Yes, born and raised. How did you first start going out in Berlin? Like, how did you first stumble across, you know, this club scene? Well, that's a bit difficult to say, actually. Um, I mean, the first time my sister actually took me out to clubs, and it was like 1976 or something. I was like 15, 16. I went to early ways of nightclubs, discotheques, and also GI places, you know, where like American GIs used to go. And there was like these places who would play funk and soul, actually. And Why were the GI places popular i guess they were just cool you know because um there was also kind of an american radio station that was would play all these american music you know and wouldn't play schlager or rock on all, all day as what the german stations would play you know so that's how i all got geared up with that music over the radio i guess when did you start playing records yourself when did you get into djing Oh, that happened, like, when I came back in the 90s, you know. It's like, I would say, in 1992, I kind of got into thinking about, like, actually becoming, or not becoming, but, like, it was more like a thing I did with a friend of mine together that we kind of decided together, well, we have all this music, uh, because when I left the States, I um, took a lot of records with me that I shipped over here, and... We just thought, well, we have all this material here, so why not start playing, doing our own parties, playing in bars, and just make it happen for us. So is New York where you really got inspired by clubs, or is that when you started collecting records and things like that? Yeah, definitely. I was already buying a lot of records in the 80s, actually, because I guess, um, you know, I think the first record I ever bought was like Planet Rock or something in 1981 or 1982 or something. I was already starting collecting music, but being actually so close to where it was happening in New York in the late 80s, I was even buying more records because they were right available left and right or, you know, in the record stores you wanted to go to. And you had to be quick, of course. You knew that uh, you'd rather buy it now or you won't see it again later on. And you heard the records in the nightclubs. That's the whole thing. I mean, you heard them on the weekend, on Saturdays. You went on Monday to the record shop and bought it, if it was possible. What record shops were you going to in New York? Mostly Vinyl Mania and Rock and Soul. What and downtown, downtown records as well. What was the vibe like in those places? You know, how, how would you compare it to, say, Berlin record stores today? Oh, it was very, very different. I mean... Um, you would go to a record store and there was like uh, the counter and of course you were able to look through back stock or something but the new stuff was always behind the counter and there was no way of pre-listening to records there was only one guy with one turntable behind the counter who was playing records where people were asking for it so you always had to scream to that guy, oh, can I hear this one? Can I hear that one? So he would play a record. And there would be like 10 people would say, yes, I want that record. So if there was only five, you know, there was a big fight about records sometimes, you know. But you just had to wait sometimes until the track you wanted was being played or something, you know. Or you knew beforehand, you know, that they said, oh, yeah, this was played then, you know, this record is quite hot, you know. And if you knew the lyrics, you could sometimes figure out the tracks, you know. 
I mean, not, uh, you know, like records were rocking down the house, you know, it's right the title as well, you know, so he knew exactly what it was. Was it a tight community in New York back then? Like, would you see the same people in the record stores that you saw in the clubs and things like that? No. It's too big. Much too big. I mean, if you, you know, I, if you go to places like, yes, like the Paradise Garage or, or you know, like Palladium or area, I mean, those people fit like 2,000 people in there, you know, and of course there were people in there as well collecting records, buying records, but it was like more like, you know, the cool kids going to the record shop and buying records, more, more like that. So which clubs did you like? Well, there were... A lot of clubs. I mean, of course, Paradise Garage and The Love were kind of my top favorite ones. But there was also Area, there was Palladium, there was Limelight later, The Tunnel, The Roxy, The Fun House. I went to The Fun House as well. And it was a very amazing, adventurous time at that time. And I know um, Mancuso and um, Larry Levon, those guys kind of remain really important DJs for you today. Right? Yes. The times I've seen you, you play pretty serious techno, but, um, <laughs> yes. but I, I've heard you say before that, um, yeah, Larry and Mancuso are still kind of your top guys. Yeah. It's, you know, of course the way also because the way they approached playing music and how they were able to mesmerize the crowd, you know, with what they did and how they did it. Of course, also with what the music, what kind of music they played, but, you know, it's more the way how they did it and how they were behind it. I mean, if you, yeah, yeah, that's what, I, you know, that's what really impressed me. You know, obviously at this point, places like the Paradise Garage and the Loft have kind of a mythical position in, you know, yeah. in this culture. How would you describe, just, just take Paradise Garage, like what makes the place so special or what's the atmosphere and like, what's the music like that, what is it about it that made such a big impression on, on the people who were there? Well, speaking from the inside of the club, you know, I think it's a, actually because it was, it was a very Afro-American and Latin club. I mean, I would say to 90% actually. So it was a very strong community of the people who were inside. And you knew that they all were there just to let loose and go crazy and dance their asses off, you know, to amazing music and to a really amazing sound system as well. And uh, from the outside, it was kind of, you know, it was a members-only club. So if you weren't a member, you weren't able to come in. There was an exception for tourists or non-Americans. You just go with your passport. And if you had a foreign passport, you were actually allowed in wow. by yourself. While members of the club could bring in guests, I think up to two guests, I think. I'm not really sure anymore. And there was two days in the year where there was like a call in for a kind of apply for a membership you i guess you had to new a member to tell you there's this date you can go to the office and you'll be able probably to become a member possibly i never um, acquired a membership because i had a boyfriend who was a member so i never needed to have a membership actually at that time and um also that club didn't sell any alcohol. 
So people really went in just for dancing and getting high on other stuff. And you mentioned before that uh, Larry Levon had sort of a special way of presenting music in kind of a specific terms. Uh, what would he do that was so mesmerizing? What was, what was it about his style that, that worked so well? Well, what Larry was pretty famous for is Larry could make or break a record, actually. If he thought of something that was amazing, he would just play it. And even if people wouldn't really react to it, he would just play it again. And if they still didn't react to it, he would just play it again. There was sometimes, I experienced one time, he played a record five times in a row until people went crazy. <laughs> So he was actually able to tell people, listen to it and take it, you know, and then they really weren't for it, you know. If he believed in something, he would just do it. And he knew how to take the people there. Amazing. Do you think you still have that mentality in the way that you DJ? I try. <laughs> I think it's very important to to bring people to what you believe in actually is uh, very important to show your vision and um, for me especially try to give a little bit back of that experience that I had that's what I try someone told me there was a time on New Year's Day or something at Panorama when you played Bolero by Maurice Ravel yes that was <laughs> like four years ago yes I feel like that's what I have in my head as, as like a Larry Levon style moment. Yes, I, you know, it took me actually two years to play that record. I always had it in my bag. And then at some point, it was during the day as well, like at midday or something, I said, now it's the time. I took it out and I played it. And uh, of course, it was like mixed in. And I already saw people on the dance were kind of like, you know, thinking, what's going on now? Do I, I know this, you know? And then I just let that record play by itself until it finished and people were just applauding and screaming afterwards. And there were still people telling me two, three years later what kind of magical moment it was for them. And that's really cool that I was able to create that and that they will have this memorable uh, experience that they can take home. That's, you know, that's all I want to do is create memorable experiences. Is that part of DJing that's sort of been lost a bit that that kind of um, really ballsy track choice and, and you know daring you know creation of a moment like that well I can't really say if it's lost you know because I don't go out so much myself anymore really and uh, I don't know what my colleagues do or other DJs really do it's you know I don't really get to her here a lot anymore also, you know, there's this really strong and big competition that, you know, people try to upstate each other, you know, and it's difficult to say. Of course, on the technical side, you know, everybody said, oh, I can be a DJ, you know, everybody who has an iPod, you know, or whatever listens to music can say, you know, I can do that too, you know. And so, I don't know, there's a million people out there. I hope it's not lost, you know. I'm sure there's 
people in it for the music as well. Also people are in it for the money, you know, because it has become such a multi-million dollar business being a DJ nowadays. So there's all these different aspects that, of course, give it totally different colorations. But I, I hope there are still people in there who want to convey something or grasp the whole group of people and take them to a higher level. Do you feel lucky that you were, you know, that you got to be in that place and time and got to see such a classic DJ in a classic club and everything? Yes. I mean, I didn't expect that really. And my first intention was actually only to be there for a couple of weeks in, in New York in you New mean? York in 1986. And it turned into four and a half years. I mean, I knew right then and there after one week, uh, there's something happening here or something is here. I mean, I kind of arrived at the end of disco, funk, electro, funk and in the right in the beginning of house so when i arrived i i knew that, that i'm on, on a change of something on a certain era you know and i couldn't leave and i would do it again definitely i'm so happy that i was able to experience that do you think there was a feeling in the clubs or wherever did people feel at that time this is something special, like there's there's something special going on here. Yes, I think so, I think so. Because, um, you know, disco died kind of in 1980, sort of, you know. All the music magazines said disco is dead, disco is crap, and they burned records. I mean, <laughs> that, that's something I That can't. one still cracks you up. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's so stupid, but you know how Americans are, can be, you know. Anyway, also, you know, the music diversified a lot after disco. And when House came on the scene, it kind of like had this new new thing happening that really made it even more. People really started going out even more, I feel like. And I guess there was like a wave of new exciting spaces. Exactly. New spaces, new possibilities and new ways of listening to music. That was just amazing. And you said that something that made Paris Carrara special was um, that it was this community that was mostly uh, black and Latino. There was also quite a big gay contingent there, right? Paris Garage. Well, it, it had actually two nights, a Friday night and a Saturday night. The Saturday night was mostly gay and the Friday night was mostly straight. So they actually had two different parties going on on the weekend. So... Of course, there were um, straight people, straight couples going to the gay night as well. But, you know, for straight people to pick up on each other would be more they go on a Friday night then. But the people who went on a Saturday night, they just went definitely for the music. And the gay night was on Saturday, so that was kind of the weekend as well. And Larry played his 8 to 12 hour sets and yeah, that's what everybody went for. They were playing those super long sets at the loft too, right? Mancuso was playing. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, come on, for that was like his living room. The way he played records, he only had one record turntable. So, I mean, 
you play a war record for 12 minutes and you play evolution for 16 minutes and then you just look for another record. There was always a break, you know, and then the next record from the beginning to the end, it was more like listening in a living room, you know. It's just kind of interesting how these super long sets have been kind of a constant in your, you know, in your career, in your personal history, because obviously at Barakani, it's the same, yeah, the same yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. So... As you said, in New York in the 80s, there was a feeling of like, this is a special time, things are changing. I doubt it was the same, but there was probably a similar feeling in Berlin in the early 90s when you when you moved over there, right? Yes, I mean, I left New York because um, the Paradise Garage had closed, the mayor had changed. So by 1990, everything just, it seemed like New York was dying, actually. It felt like now the 80s are over. Everything is just like gone and burned away, kind of. And here in Berlin, the wall was falling, you know. So it seemed like there's a totally shift in historical changes and everything. What made New York feel like everything was burned and gone? Or you know, what, what was different specifically? Yeah, I mean, the... Best clubs were closed. The loft was closed. David went on rehab. You know, he couldn't stand it anymore. Otherwise, he would have probably dead by now. And Larry died a year later as well. I mean, just felt like it was over for some reason. When the Paradise Garage closed, everything just fell and fell into shambles for, you know. Even Junior Vasquez opened his sound factory right the weekend after the Paradise Garage closed, but that meant totally something different. What did it mean? Well, there was this little young white kid trying to win over the predominantly Latin and Afro-American crowd from the Paradise Garage into like this new club that nobody has heard of and nobody ever talked about it. And... Who was that little white kid who's going to be the DJ that nobody ever heard of, you know? So I think people did go because they really played big and he had his impact like in the 90s, which I, you know, I don't, I didn't experience at that time. But it was a totally different time already then. I mean, people stopped going out, you know, and I can't really say, but it changed totally. What was the atmosphere like in Berlin when you got there? Oh, yeah, I mean, it was also like coming over to East Berlin was like, you know, going after a war or something, you know, it was so dark and run down. And yeah, it was like another adventure opened up there, it seemed like. Was it hard to get used to after New York? Yeah, it took me like six months to get used to it, actually. I even had problems starting to speak German again. <laughs> and you started DJing around then? No, I started DJing actually around 92, 93, doing some little private things with a friend of mine, some bars, and then we actually played for a gay party at SO36 in like 94, 95 which was fine, which was actually quite nice, but then that stopped, and unfortunately, and then I was, I just kept on playing in bars until like 99 almost, 
and I became good friends with Tilo Schneider, who used to work for Flyer magazine, now works for Groove magazine. He was already helping out the owners from Berghain with their booking at their first club at Osgood. And then he heard me one time and he said, well, you're playing pretty good music, so I didn't even know, you know. And then six weeks later, I get a call from the owner of Osgood saying, well, do you want to play at Snacks? Because we need another DJ. And I said, well, sure. And that was September 1999. That was my first time I played for them. And after that gig, they said, well, we're opening up another floor that's going to be called Panorama Bar. And if you want to be part of it, we would like you to be there. And since so I've been playing for them since then, it's like 15 years now. So today's Snacks is like, it happens once a year, twice a year? You now it's twice a year. Twice a year. Yeah. But was it a more regular thing back then? In At Oscar, we did it five times a year. And today it seems like a Snacks remains kind of one of the most, I know among DJs, it's kind of one of the most interesting gigs you can get. It seems like a lot of people want to play Snacks. What do you think makes that party... You know, what What gives snacks, it's, it's kind of what makes snacks special. I think when you're there, either if you when you're there as a, as a guest or if you play there, you can actually see the real face of Berghain. You know exactly why that place exists on that night. Then it all makes sense. And why is that? Well, I think it all goes together with this maleness, this Bruteness, you know, this testosterone, you know, that fits right into that building. And that's all there then. Yeah, and I guess we should clarify that Snacks is the men's only party. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't happens at Berkheim now. <laughs> He's definitely Oscar. So, when did uh, techno become part of your repertoire? Did you get, you know, inspired by the techno clubs in Berlin in the 90s? Well, I think it was like kind of a very slow subcurrent development because even when I used to play house before, it was always darker and dubbier or hard to say, but I always was more like in the tracky mode or it's difficult to explain, but I just felt like I could also present what I know and what I feel like would fit into Berghain actually and I started off playing at Panorama Bar in the beginning and after a couple of years I just felt like well I would actually also like to try the dance floor downstairs and I never expected it to turn out this way but it just I guess happened all very naturally once I started playing downstairs there was no turning back anymore. <laughs> So Oskut was uh, just a gay club, is that right? Yes, but it was open like Berghain for straight people as well. Right, okay. But um, am I right in thinking that it was a lot less mixed back then than Berghain is today? Yes, when Oskut opened in 1998, it was actually predominantly gay. And uh, when Panorama Bar opened in 2000, then it became more and more mixed especially from 2001 on when everybody knew the place was closing then it just got so it just turned out to be you know overrun and the best club in berlin at that time already and then it was very mixed it seems like it's a phenomenon in berlin maybe other places too that these um 
predominantly gay parties eventually get more and more popular with the straight crowd and, until it's basically a mixed party. Does it ever seem like um, straight people are you know crashing all the gay parties in Berlin? Yes, maybe it's it, it looks like it, but maybe it's just natural all over the world, you know? I mean, gays know how to have fun. <laughs> I guess in the gay community, you know, like or being gay and going out, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 50s, whatever, it's all more liberal sexual-wise, you know, people hook up very close, very fast, you know, and... Uh, it's probably to totally different game. It is a different game, you know, than how straight people interact with each other, you know, which seems to be or used to be more complicated maybe at that time. So the attraction was so maybe at that, you know, that just happened that way that, oh, let's go to gay parties because they just know how to have fun. They don't fight, you know, they don't fight over women, you know, they, you know, they don't uh, knock each other out when they're drunk, you know. It's maybe very attractive, you know, for women, definitely. That's why a lot of women like to go to gay parties as well, you know. They don't get hit on or something, you know. That's why also a lot of fags have also girlfriends, like, you know, that always go to their parties. I would imagine that kind of a similarity between those clubs that you like to New York, Paradise Garage, especially, and like a gay party in Berlin is that they're both kind of uh, havens, or, you know, mm. like a special little world that's safer for these people than, you know, the rest of the yeah. world. Is that, I mean, do you agree? Is that true? Yes, I would say so. It makes kind of sense to me. Do you think Berkheim or other clubs have, are they losing that feeling at all of, of being like a, a haven for a you know, certain group? No, I don't think so. I mean, that's why we have such a good door. You're working, you know, to kind of select who is possibly you know fitting into what's going on in there and who's not in general would you say that the the gay scene in berlin or especially the gay party scene is it unique do you think it's completely different from other cities i think it is a bit unique here i feel or what i have seen and experienced there are parties going on yeah in different cities all over the world some of them are also pretty unique and good for themselves you know we don't have a closing hour you can have a party here for 96 hours if you like there is no nobody telling you when to stop and uh, you can sell liquor for as long as you want which is in other countries very regulated as well we don't even have any uh, religious hung-ups, you know, or holidays that you have to be uh, aware of that you can't have a party or something. So we are, I think it's very, very unique to do a party here and be totally, yeah, without much restrictions. And before you said you felt like there was a moment where it was over in New York. Have you ever gotten that feeling in Berlin? Yeah, I guess the first time when uh, our school closed. I mean, that already was like such a... Yeah, it was just so amazing when that place was happening and what was happening in there, what kind of people went there and came, which, you know, it was just really amazing at that time. And when that stopped, that was like, that was pretty tough because then you just thought Berlin lost big factor of its life actually but then obviously that factor sort of came back or was replaced i guess 
Yes, I would have never thought, you know, who would have ever thought, you know, that it would happen, you know, and and it would happen in that way, you know, you could, nobody could foresee that actually. So how exactly did it happen? Osgood closed and then eventually you just heard that there would be a new Osgood that was, you know, would have the same residence and everything or how exactly did it play out? I just knew that Osgood generated a lot of income, a lot of uh, taxes for the city, you know. So I knew that uh, I heard that the uh, owners got actually offered places, you know, where you can go and just start a new nightclub or something. But none of them were really suitable, as I heard. And until they fixed their interest onto this one object, which is now Berghain. And uh, it took a lot of work and a lot of planning actually to make it happen. So until everything was really fixed and, you know, turned over into paper and writing, nothing was really heard of, you know, if it's going to happen or not, because... It would be stupid anyway to give out a rumor, yeah, we're going to open up this place next year, you know, if you if you don't know if you really can, you know. But then when it happened, yeah, I was really thrilled and amazed. And uh, when they asked me back to play there again, I was, was able to be part of that team again. Yeah, so over the years, uh, you've seen some of the best clubs some of the best parties um you know in a way things like the loft and paris garage and not to mention the other ones you mentioned like limelight these places represent something close to the ideal of this culture you know the, the ideal club party how often have you seen anything that you know comes close to that or you know how close is a good night at berghain to a good night at paradise garage or well that's a bit difficult i mean uh <laughs> i guess no way to put it is are those experiences just in the past or do you still sometimes, you know, feel something close to what you felt back then? I mean, these places happen in a certain period of time. I was in a certain age and situation at that time. So it was a very personal experience connected to that time. And it's, I think it's kind of not really possible to compare it to that what's going on now because also the availability and of course the amount you know you have i mean you have like now 10,000 clubs probably in the world nowadays while you know 20 25 years ago it was maybe only 100 actually you know there was each city had its own big club maybe you know so this is kind of you know difficult to say but i'm have my moments at Berkheim I do when I play and I hope the people as well when they listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> 